Well, thank you, church family, for your worship and song and worship team. What an incredible job you guys did this morning, and uh, we're proud of y'all and what you're doing. Hannah, is Hannah back in here yet? She hadn't made it back in. She's changing. Uh, we are proud of her and uh, certainly proud of, of Clay and Christian as well and uh, their commitment to Travis and our worship team. Um, we want to see more baptisms, okay? Like, can I just be honest with you? Like, we want to see more of y'all in there. Some of you need to get in there because some of you probably aren't saved either. So Mike Peterson, you're next, buddy. Listen, we, we, we long for the day. I long for the day where every Sunday we baptize. Every Sunday. That's the dream. Because we're on mission. We're doing what God has told us to do. We're proclaiming the gospel faithfully and living it faithfully as well. Well, Acts chapter 4 and in the beginning of, of chapter 5. And so let me just say this from the get-go. If you've grown up in church, if you have any familiarity with the Bible at all, you're vaguely familiar with the story in Acts chapter 5. It is a story that I think should be reserved for the book of Judges or First or Second Kings. It doesn't fit in the New Testament. And the reason why I say that, even though it is, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, it's such a peculiar incident. It's a, an immensely uh, sort of aggressive response, so to speak, in, in what Ananias and in the story of Ananias and Sapphira withholding from God. And then God pronouncing really judgment upon them because they lied not just to the church, they lied first and foremost to God. And so God just instantly, they, they breathe their last breath and they're done. And uh, then the ministry team uh, of, of removing bodies from church services comes in, takes them away. It, it is a strange story. And oftentimes the rub with this story is because we live in a, in a, in a posture, in a, in a place of grace in the church age. And, and you see that post-Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit of God has come, and yet God is dealing like very severely with, with his people. Like he's not playing games in, in this moment. And it should just strike us as, as really odd. Now, I've heard the story of, of Ananias and Sapphira uh, growing up uh, my, my entire life and, and rereading it. And, and oftentimes what I see preachers do is they'll portray this story as a, as a, as a story of application about giving. And I've heard the tithing sermons like, you, you rob God, like this is what's going to happen. Here's the problem with that understanding in regards to this text. We should only understand scripture in light of other scripture. The context in which scripture is given, it matters immensely. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, are, are right before that, are preceded by, by what the Lord does through us through Luke's writing and describing how the church was walking in unity and how it transitioned with Ananias and Sapphira. And what we really have here is we have a story in Acts chapter 5 that is an example of, of how to bring disunity in the body rather than a sermon or a story that is addressing tithing. And so to understand chapter 5 or the first 11 or 12 verses, we've got to back up and we've got to understand what happens before that. And so if you would draw your attention with me to verse 32 of chapter 4 where we pick up in the reading where it says this, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them. And they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. One of the first things that I want you to notice this morning in in these first several verses I want you to notice that in the political climate in which we live in, the posture of the church was one of voluntarily acting in ways that were generous to reflect the gospel. It was not compulsion by government officials. There are those within certain branches of Christianity that wish to take passages like this and elsewhere, and they will try to make an argument from Scripture that the government has a right to take things from you involuntarily. But what we see here displayed in the book of Acts is that the church was overwhelmingly full of generosity, a generosity of spirit to where they were voluntarily giving up things and letting loose certain things so that they could hold on to something else. What I want you to see in these first several verses is the understanding that it is God who establishes unity through Jesus. Unity is not something that the church can create. It's not something that we manifest in and of our own ability. But unity rather is something that has been given by God through Jesus. God is the author and the perfecter. We see in verse 33, it says, as they belonged to one another with great power, they were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. So the unity that existed in the life of the church at this point was oriented around the the life, death, and burial and resurrection of Jesus. It was a unity in the gospel and rooted in the gospel. While God establishes unity through Jesus and we understand this, the church has an obligation that though we don't create unity, my friends, we maintain it and we contend for it. And we fight for unity, not to the neglect of truth, not to minimize bad behavior, not to overlook offenses, not to go past abuse, but we guard unity in the life of the body by making sure that we're oriented around the only thing that ultimately matters, the resurrection of Christ. That we believe it is through the gospel that God changes the hearts of men and women. We talked about this last week, how God doesn't reconcile racist, but rather God reconciles the hearts of the men who have racist thoughts. That it is only God and his gospel and the power of the gospel that we're able to overcome and to pursue justice and, and to pursue the things that God calls us to do. God establishes unity through Jesus. The church simply seeks to maintain it and contend for it. But what we also see in verses 32 through 35 is we see this understanding, particularly in the early church, where they were beginning to let loose their grips on their own personal security and their own comforts. 
And so as these men and women were changed by the gospel and as God gets their attention and they begin to respond and begin to walk in obedience, they begin to loosen their grip on their possessions and their things and rather they begin to to tighten their grip on one another. The early church in this moment, they, they were captivated by the gospel and it is the gospel of Jesus that loosens our grip on our possessions and on our stuff and it allows us to tighten our grip on one another. Ministry is about relationships. Ministry is about people. And if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God and growing the kingdom of God, we are a part of investing into people. Programs are good, and programs can be beneficial. But at a certain point, sometimes we have to come back to the place where we reevaluate programs. And we ask the harder questions, is this program helping us reach people that are far from God? Is it helping them come to know Jesus just as we do? And the deeper we walk with Christ, the more we begin to, to let our grips loose of the things that are just temporary or the things that are just of this world. I'm reminded of elsewhere in scripture where Peter reminds us that we are just but sojourners traveling through the land and at some point we're given things and possession and time and talents and resources and we steward those things but we don't steward them with this life in mind. Rather we steward the things that God has given us for the next life, for eternity. We're not living for this life. We are living for an entire other life that that we are going to exist forever in eternity with our heavenly Father. The gospel allows us to, to loosen our grip from those things that are temporal. He goes on in verse 36 and he describes one of my favorite characters in all of the book of Acts. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, who was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now what makes this interesting is that in this moment of of Joseph or in this moment of Barnabas being candid with the church, he's described in this instance as a Levite. In the first couple of times I read over that, I thought, well, no big deal. Why would Luke include that in his description? Well, if you know anything about Old Testament Levites, they were not allowed. They were prohibited by God from owning and possessing any land. That it was against their, 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 their very family lineage to possess any land, to own the land. And we don't know Barnabas' heart behind this. We don't know if he felt convicted by the Spirit. We know that he was led by God to go and to sell something that, wasn't, that, that was his, that belonged to him, and then to lay the money at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is an incredible man. We're going to see him pop up in the book of Acts uh, six or seven more times. He, he was the leader of giving amongst his friends. He was the leader amongst all of his brothers and sisters. He was the first one that was there with Paul after his conversion that embraces him and welcomes him into the kingdom despite all of the evil and awful things that Paul had done prior to coming to know Christ. Barnabas was the man in in the church in Antioch in Acts 11, which led the church to to seek greater diversification in the kingdom, to to have a variety of people in the midst of the church and and leading. He he was the one that led the way. He was put in charge later on of of relief money and, and benevolence ministry in Jerusalem for the church that, get this, was suffering in the midst of a pandemic. Pandemics are not new to 2020. Pandemics come and go. 
And the church has always come out on the end better. And we can hope in that truth. And Barnabas was a part of making an impact in his community. One scholar said it this way. He said, Barnabas, his ministry became his mark. In other words, Barnabas was referred to as the son of encouragement. Because encouragement was primarily Barnabas' ministry. So here's a rhetorical question for you this morning that I've asked this week as your pastor. Um, Based on what I've been doing and the habits in my life, what I am consistently portraying to people, what would be my nickname? What would be your nickname? In light of how you're living the gospel and living out the gospel, would it be one of, of he, he's an encourager? He's a, he's a merciful man or, or a merciful woman. He's a confident leader full of integrity. Would you adapt the name? based on how you were living and, and how you were portraying yourself. Barnabas became the son of encouragement. His ministry became his mark. It, he was named this for a, for a purpose and for a reason because he was highly an encouraging person. He was a, a glass is, is always half full, not empty. I think for too many Christians and too many believers, we would be known probably not as perhaps the son of encouragement, but we would just be grumps. We would be sort of the Debbie Downers or the church curmudgeons, uh, uh, whatever name that, that you want to take on. I mean, too often in our life, we find ourselves drifting towards negative and bad habits, if not checked by the Spirit of God. And so rhetorically speaking, what is it about your ministry that, that you can be identified with, first and foremost with Christ, but understanding in the way of Barnabas that names are significant and they mean things at often deeper levels. People who have been transformed by the gospel lay their money down and they begin to pick people up. Barnabas was changed, so much so that he was willing to sell what he possessed so that he could gain what he could not earn, but his investment was in people. It was in relationships. Now, just a quiz to make sure that you guys are still alive this morning. We communicate the value of relationships, and we have this little simple statement where the pastor says, and you finish the sentence, circles more than rows. Why do we believe that? Because we believe people are our mission. And we believe to invest in people, you have to be a part of a shared living and there's a shared experience that's involved. We are walking together side by side, hand and foot, struggling through life together, succeeding in life together, failing at times together. But there are people in my circle that come alongside me and they pick me up and I pick themselves up. In other words, to say it this way, hold your stuff loosely and people tightly. Hold your stuff loose and cling to people tightly because our investment is in the relationships that God gives us and we see this at the end of chapter four, but then we see this contrast. We see that unity is gained in the posture of shared living and coming alongside, being united in heart. It's a place of generosity that the church lived in. And now we see an example of what not to do in practicing the opposite end of what takes place in chapter four. And so we pick up in verse one of chapter five where he says, but a man named Ananias 
with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. Now, Ananias literally means God is merciful. God is merciful. So don't miss the irony of his name and then ultimately what happens to him. It says that his wife's name is Sapphira. In in the Aramaic, it means beautiful. And so here you have this man who is known and named after the fact that God is a merciful God. You have his wife who in Aramaic just means beautiful. And then you have this instant in verse 2 where he says they sell this piece of property. And then notice what it says. With his wife's knowledge... He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So a couple things just happened. Number one, we see that Ananias led his wife into a position and a posture of sin. Ananias is responsible and culpable as the leader of the relationship, but so is Sapphira. She's just as culpable for for going along. And one of the broader things that we we take out of this instance and this interaction because we know the consequences, friend, let me implore you, do not ever let your spouse lead you into sin. Do not allow it or stand for it. Whether it's husband and wife or wife or husband, we are called to build each other up in the kingdom to be pursuing Jesus. God never calls us to do something, no matter how we want to justify it or how desperate we are, he never calls us to do something that is contradictory to his word. God will never ask that from his people. He'll ask us to take hard stands at times. He'll ask us to be principled and virtuous people. But he will not ask us to do what is contrary to his word. But with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. So he sells it for an amount. He keeps some of that amount. And then he goes and he lays the rest of the amount before the apostles' feet, which just would have meant he would have laid it before the church for all to see, implying that he had given everything. When the reality was, he had only given a percentage. What's happening is they they were essentially lying publicly to the church, putting themselves on display for this act. And so one time I was in uh, the country of Uganda in a church service. And it came time for the offering. And so in this particular church service, the offering baskets, they, they were these like buckets, began to go around. And the music was playing and and we were singing and we were worshiping and we passed the bucket. And then all of a sudden I see the bucket sort of come to the front and I see one of the pastors go up and he looks in the bucket and he sort of moves some stuff around and he just sort of gives this little motion like this and the ushers go back out and they begin to pass the offering plate once again. And the only thing that I could contend with is I was guessing that he wasn't satisfied with the offering or he knew that there were some Ananiases and Sapphiras in the audience. And he was going to try to get everything that he could to give to them, to to not hold back. And I think there were some strong words about the first fruits of our offerings, right? And he was just going to hold it, hold everyone accountable and pass them again. And he's watching. I watched him. He's watching people, like just staring at them. Like, can you imagine for a moment how hostile that, that really makes you feel? If we had elders and staff, as we pass the offering, and they're looking, like they're watching, hands folded. Noah, what are we doing today, right? What's happening today? Nathan, step it up, buddy, okay? Let's get after this. Like, how intimidating is that? 
And the idea is, is that he was sort of bringing accountability to the church in a, in a good sense, but, but it was drawing attention to those that were giving and were not. And, and we can argue whether that was good or bad. I don't know. I'm not the pastor. I just, I'm observing what I experienced. But they only brought a part of it and they laid it at the apostles' feet. What this teaches us is that one of the ways to disrupt unity in the church is, is to be what I would just call a, a spiritual poser. You know what a poser is? A pretender. Someone who was posing in one way. It was sort of when I was growing up, I'm a zennial. I was born in 82. And we, we would call people in middle school, you're a poser. You know, and that was just, we were just angry about it. Like, you're a poser. You're not real. It sort of evolved with Gen Z. You're, you're authentic or, or not. We, we softened the language a little bit. But they were, they were spiritual posers. They, they were pretenders, pretending one thing, all the while responding in a different way. And so I want to say this to us very gently, but I want to make sure that we hear this. When we sin, we're not first and foremost sinning before people. The first and foremost place that the sin is offense to is always and will always be the Lord. When we sin, it may involve other people in our relationships, but the sin has offense first and foremost before God. And that should be our greatest concern. Not whether we got caught or didn't get caught by friends or family or, or coworkers, but the offense is what we have done before a holy and righteous God that we proclaim and that we live under. And so Ananias and, and Sapphira, they, they did this. They were spiritual pretenders. But why also would they come and lay the gift at the apostles' feet? I, I think the second way that disrupts unity in the church is when his people are, are seeking praise and attention for what they're doing. Like they want credit or, or, or acknowledgement. And so let me say this. I feel like I always have to say this. Um, churches don't often do a good enough job of telling people thank you. Like ministers are, are some of the worst sometimes where we just don't say, hey, thanks for, for doing this. Thanks for serving. Thanks for being faithful. Thanks for, for always showing up and always being present and always will. Like, thank you, thank you, thank you. We don't do enough of that. If I want to be liberal in one thing in my life, I want to be liberal with my praise towards other people and my encouragement towards other people. It should be a motivation for, for all of us. But they were praise seekers. They were the opposite of what Barnabas was doing. Selling the land and, and giving uh, the full price of, of what he's done. And so verse 3 picks up and he says, But Peter says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but you have lied to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and they wrapped him up and they carried him out and they buried him. So Ananias' life was taken because he grieved the Holy Spirit and he lied first and foremost to God. I find the Lord's response to this deceit, especially in 2020, to be one that's like, hey, we're, there's no grace here, it doesn't seem like. And it seems like a very harsh response to maybe a minor offense because we probably all know, we're already thinking about it, people that have done far worse and yet have prospered even in the midst of, of doing things that are worse than this. 
And the truth is, I, I don't know why God did or didn't and he chose, but, but I think that it could have been an act of mercy for Ananias and Sapphira to, to deal with that sin immediately. Because I believe that when God deals with my sin, my friends, it's not an act of, of rebuke, but it's an act of loving kindness. He disciplines those that he loves. When he cares for you, he, he brings the sin out into the open. In fact, one of the ways uh, that I've seen uh, men and, and women come to know Christ is when he exposes the sin. Uh, it's a reminder that God is still there and he, and he loves you enough to deal with the things and the ways in which you fail. And so it's because he loves us, he disciplines us. And it's his kindness that, that ultimately leads us to repentance. And, and can he do what he does to Ananias and Sapphira? Sure, he can. I'm thankful that I believe that that's not the common practice of the Lord. But it's a reminder to me that, that separates me from God. He, he is God. I am not. He is a friend to me, but I am not his friend. I am not his equal. He is kind and gracious to me, yet at the same time, he is set apart and distinct and different. He is holy, for I am not. We are different because of that. And their lies in this moment were really a symptom of, of something that was going on a little bit greater. Verses 7 through 11 just categorize what happens to his wife. She says it three hours later. They ask her the same question. She says the same thing. God instantly takes her breath. And then these random men uh, show up. Um, I've always uh, wondered, like in verse 10, when it says, when the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out. Who, like, who were these guys that were like just ready? And I've struggled with that all week. Like, it's got, who was who this team? Like, I, at first I was like, this has got to be the college interns. This is what you pay the college interns to come do. Like, when the guy falls over in the service, like, you come out with a stretcher, you wrap them up, and then you, you brisk them away. And then I realized that this must have been Roy Kaiser's ministry back in the time of Jesus. Roy, who, who attends our earlier service, if you don't know this, uh, he is a... Um, um, uh, oh man, what's it called? A, a dead person uh, beautician. Mortician, mortician. He's a mortician, right? So he, he is people that die. Like, really, that's, that's the word, right? This is what he does. So it had to be his ministry. Or when we start that, we're going to put Cindy Wade on that team with Roy, right? And we're going to pass the offering bucket and we're going to see who flinches. And when they do, they're going to come alongside the personnel committee, the missions committee, and the finance committee, and we're going to take them out of here, and then off we go, right? That's going to be the sole purpose for why that person exists. But notice what it says in response to the people at the end. It says, a great fear came upon the whole church. I think one of the best definitions of biblical fear that, that I've seen over the years, uh, and I don't know who said it exactly, but they said it something like this, fear is a mixture of awe and intimacy, all and intimacy. So many years ago when I was the student minister here at Travis, we used to do youth camp up in Missouri and we would go to Lake of the Ozarks. And one year, I think it was my first or my second year here, we were sleeping early in the morning at about seven o'clock and all of a sudden we heard tornado sirens. And we didn't see that coming. We didn't know it was coming. And so my wife was there when she had, I think, senior girls at the time and we had Connor and, and Reese were there with us. And those tornado sirens were going off and they were told to go to the goat cave there at Camp Windermere. Go get in the cave. It's the safest place on campus. And so in the middle of thunder and lightning, 
in, in the middle of, of wind, uh, sort of advancing 60, 70 miles an hour, in the midst of all of that, lightning going off, running with two small children, plus the students that are with us, running to the cave, seeking refuge in the cave. And you get in the cave, and all of a sudden, this, this feeling of, of security happens because all of a sudden you're safe in the cave and then you look out the hole of the cave, out to where the storm is while it's still raging. And you sort of move from this place of, of insecurity in the storm to a level of security inside the cave knowing you're gonna be safe and then this place of awe as you look out and you hear the thunder and you see the lightning and you see the power of the wind and the power of the water coming down. It's this mixture of awe and intimacy. Look what is happening, but look how powerful God is. He is close and he is near, yet I am safe in this moment. This morning, I, I want to simply ask you the question. It's the question I've asked myself all week. Are you a pretender? Are you a pretender? I jokingly said this earlier, but I halfway mean it. I believe it's possible to attend church your whole life and not really be a Christian. I believe it's possible to know the lingo of Scripture, to know the culture of Christianity, but still not know the Christ to not be walking with him in, in fellowship and in relation. It's possible. It's possible to be a Sunday school teacher or a deacon or, or, or even an elder. It's possible to, to be a choir member or a, or a, or a worship team member. It's, it's possible to have been in church for, for 50, 60, 70 years and still not know Jesus because you're pretending. I believe it's God's desire and heart for his people this morning that we would come to know him intimately and to walk with him faithfully. There's been a lot of talk this past week about Confederate flags in the state of Mississippi. You been watching that? Thankfully, their legislator voted to change their flag to, to get rid of the, of the Confederate flag emblem that, that existed on the, on the flag. Should have been done a long time ago, and I'm speaking as a guy that I get in trouble for my wife who's listening to this right now, and she's going to tell me I shouldn't say this, where I end up a lot of times having more pride in being a Texan Southern than a, than a member of the United. Like I'm, I'm thankful for my country, but I'm, I'm almost as equally and more proud that I'm from Texas. Like, God, please never ask me to leave. I don't want to leave Texas. I'm a proud Southern guy. Like, I love living in the South. Wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Years ago, um, I came across um, this little note. You may not be able to see it from where you are, but this is a, a real, actual $20 bill, Confederate $20 bill in the Confederacy. It was used as an exchange for, for good. And you may ask yourself, why, why would you keep that? And, and why would you keep a memento to the Confederacy? I'm not doing it to honor the Confederacy. I'm not doing it because I supported it or would support it, none of that. I simply keep it up there in a reminder on my bookshelf because what was once worth $20 for a few, few brief years that had value to it for a brief period of time, it has no value today. Sure, I can trade it on eBay for, for a certain amount, but I can't go across the street to the store and, and buy anything with it. It's, it's meaningless. It's cool to have and, and, and cool to look at, um, but it doesn't mean anything more than that. What it represents to me is 
the futility and the meaninglessness of following earthly things. So many things in my life, I ask the question, does it, does it matter for eternity if I do this? Am I making choices and decisions with eternity in mind? I don't always get that right. But I'm thankful for God's grace and his forgiveness when I mess up. I keep this and I look at this almost every day to remind myself of what I'm committing myself to for that day and does it matter with eternity in mind. This morning, I just ask you that question. Are you living your life in light of eternity? Are you living for earthly things? Are you living for things that are built to last beyond this life? You can't do that apart from a relationship with Jesus. If you don't know Christ, I implore you to, to give your life to him, to confess with your mouth, to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, to receive him as, as Savior and Lord. But if you're a part of this church, my question to you is, is maybe more strategic and, and maybe even more compelling and, and maybe uh, a little painful. Are, are you pretending in some way spiritually? Stop. Don't do that. Don't do that. Be real in your walk with the Lord. Be real in your walk with your friends because your circles matter more than your rows. People are our mission. They're why we exist. They're, they're why we aim. It's what God has called us to do is to reach people with the gospel. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you that you have saved us, not according to our talent, not according to our ability, not according to anything that we've done. We, we offer nothing to you. But you in your goodness, you in your righteousness, that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. God, you died for us make those who were dead alive. We pray that we would experience that freedom this morning, that you would bring old and you would make it new again. Father, help your people respond. Help us not be pretenders this morning. Help us walk faithfully with you to be real and authentic before a watching world. Help us, God. We ask these things in Christ's name. I'm going to invite you at this time to stand up and to sing in response to the word. You're welcome to come down and to pray. You're welcome to kneel where you are and to pray, but let's seek the mercy of our kind God this morning.